On the last episode of Lilac Wine, the podcast, Abelia and Robert leave the 4th of July festivities a little early. Robert was feeling a little homesick. If you have not yet listened to the previous chapters, please do so. We are releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Lilac Wine. Chapter 22. The glass jugs bobbed gently in the waters of the Mississippi as Billy threw another one out and tethered it to the shore. Beneath each jug dangled a line in the murky waters with a bit of dry, salted pork wrapped around a large hook. Billy called it jugging and told Robert that it was an old tradition on the Mississippi for catching catfish. Although that was true, and he had been doing it for years, it was his attempt to hook Robert with more River Americana, actually. After all, Huck Finn and Jim caught a catfish in the Mississippi that was the size of a man, six feet, two inches long, complete with a brass button in its stomach. I never seen a cat that big, Billy said. There's a giant sturgeon living near the docks, though. I saw it come to the surface once. About 15 years ago, Herbert caught the sturgeon in a net on his day off. It wasn't the standard shovel-nose variety, but the more rare lake sturgeon. Before he could even gut and clean the fish, the town had descended upon the docks to gaze upon the monster, tied to a line on the shore. Although he had planned on eating it and even invited the whole town to a sturgeon picnic, as the fish could have fed dozens, it was Ellie who had suggested that it become the official mascot of Lily Springs in order to draw more tourists to the city. Anglers from Dubuque will come up in droves, I bet, she said enthusiastically. It was quickly agreed upon, and Lily Springs then had a mascot of sorts. They named her Missy and released her back into the water. Needless to say, people were not drawn to the town because of a large fish that could be caught anywhere along the upper Mississippi. Plus, once the large Welcome to Lily Springs, home of Missy, Sign, complete with a painted sturgeon with big round eyes and a smile, was placed above the docks, it was Charles who realized that Lily Springs didn't have a hotel or any place for weary travelers to spend the night. Where'll they stay? he asked, which prompted some heated bickering among some of the townspeople. Ellie believed that a small hotel should be built. It's a mark of civilization, she argued. Others countered that a hotel would be too costly and might draw some undesirable folk into their lives. 
In lieu of a hotel, some offered up rooms in their homes to the future travelers who would never come. In the end, it really didn't matter. No one came to Lily Springs because of Missy. In fact, more people have left Lily Springs in the years since the discovery of the fish than have visited. The sign above the dock is so faded that the fish is hardly recognizable. With its large eyes, the only feature that can be discerned on the blistering wood. Nothing much of Missy remains in Lily Springs except for one thing. Before throwing the fish back on that warm summer day more than a decade ago, John Hinkman took a picture of Herbert proudly posing with the fish. That picture is framed behind his barber chair, and anyone doubting Missy's existence is pointed in the direction of the Lily Springs barbershop. The story of Missy the Sturgeon is, perhaps, the most repeated tale told by Herbert to those who have sat in his chair. I'm not sure it's even alive anymore, said Billy. Hasn't been seen in at least two years. Robert looked out across the river. A burst of warm breeze rustled through his hair. He had never seen a sturgeon before, or a catfish for that matter. Missy probably left town like everyone else, he said with a laugh. It was late Saturday afternoon, the 4th of July picnic still the subject of conversation in town. Even with the premature fireworks show, the town generally agreed that it was the best picnic ever. Brad Abel even made time to sing a rousing encore of Over There before heading north to Gutenberg in his truck, the townspeople lining the road applauding wildly as he made his way out of the triangle. Billy felt like a different person after the picnic. There was something about driving that large truck that made him feel more in control, something he hadn't quite felt since running into Clifford Jackman and his goons on the riverboat. Laying in bed after the picnic, the faint smell of fuel that clung tenaciously to his skin pulled him into sleep, and his dreams that night were of trucks and road trips. Billy placed a blade of grass between his lips as a steam whistle from an excursion boat, most likely a mile or two beyond the bend, cut the air. He looked over to Robert and smiled. Everything seemed right in the world for a change. Although he had lived his entire life near Lake Michigan, Robert could count the number of times he had fished on one hand. He told Billy about his Uncle Henry, the fisherman of the family. He had taken Robert fishing a couple of times on the lake further north near Waukegan, where the waters were clear and the perch plentiful. Uncle Henry even had a couple of rods and some nice meek reels he kept in the shop on Wabash Street. Often, Robert found him asleep at the desk, his feet propped up, and a copy of the latest issue of Forest and Stream resting on his belly. Sometimes Henry would leave the office early, pole in hand, to cast a few lines off the new municipal pier, which offered cleaner waters further from shore. Even though fishing was popular along the lakeshore, no one bothered fishing in the Chicago River in the Loop anymore. Most serious anglers headed out of the city to the nearby Desplaines or Fox Rivers or took a boat on the lake. I wonder what Uncle Henry's doing now, Robert said, more to himself than to anyone else. Probably fishing the crystal clear lakes of upstate New York, I imagine. He deserves to get away. I've never seen Lake Michigan before, Billy said. Maybe sometime you could take me fishing there. I'd love to get away, too. 
After making sure the lines were secure, he sat down on the log next to Robert, reached into his pocket, and pulled out the flask of corn. The liquid was fire in his throat, and the smell seemed to singe the hairs in his nostrils. He handed the flask to Robert, who took a small sip, his face contorted into a grimace even before the liquid touched his lips. Ugh, I don't know if I could ever get used to that, he said. Don't drink too much, Billy said. I'll need your help if we catch a man-sized cat. As if on cue, one of the jugs splashed in the water. It bounced up only to be brought down again by something drawn to the salt pork. Billy rose to his feet and grabbed the appropriate line. Don't just sit there, he said. Here's your chance to land a real Mississippi catfish. Robert grabbed the line and pulled. The jug jerked toward him as a dark shape broke the surface, then vanished once again. It wasn't much of a struggle. Expecting more resistance, he yanked on the line harder than necessary, launching the fish and jug clear out of the water. The little catfish looked up at him from the grassy bank at his feet, its mouth opening and closing in desperate gasps. It wasn't more than eight inches long, if that even. So that's a real Mississippi catfish, huh? Robert said with a laugh. Billy picked it up and quickly removed the hook. Not worth the effort, he said, throwing it back into the water. Give it a few years and then it'll be something to haul in. After rebaiting the hook, Billy threw the jug back into the water. We'll get a good one, always do. He set the line and checked the positions of the other jugs. There were five in all, bobbing in a nice row about ten feet from the bank. See that one over there? Billy pointed to the jug, gently rocking near a fallen tree, its worn and rotten trunk sticking a foot or two out of the water. That's the best spot. The cats like the mud around logs and hollows. I bet that'll be the one. Robert lit a cigarette, blowing smoke at the large mosquitoes that swarmed around his head. My mom makes the best fried catfish around, continued Billy. You know her secret? Bacon fat, with a little salted pork thrown in for good measure. We'll need to catch a few and have you over for dinner. I hope you're not busy tonight. He took a gulp from the flask and swallowed with another involuntary frown and shake of the head. Billy saw the look on Robert's face. New batch, he explained. Eh, not so good this time. It wasn't very good last time, Robert replied. But that stuff smells like shit. Billy choked down another swig. Better than nothing, he said. Another whistle cut the air as the steamer turned the bend, the sound of the band playing on the dance floor barely audible above the swoosh of the paddle, which grew in intensity as the steamer came into view. People milled around the dock, sipping drinks, laughing. That's the G.W. Hill, Billy explained. Not quite as big as the Sydney. Popular excursion boat, though. Heading up to Gutenberg tonight. Billy remembered seeing ads this week in the Telegraph Herald for the excursion, which was sponsored by the Dubuque Commercial Club. Renting excursion boats was a popular way for local groups to raise money, and the G.W. Hill was Dubuque's most popular excursion boat. Bring your friends, have a good time, the ad stated. Unlike the Sydney, which was one of several boats owned by Streckfest steamers, the GW Hill was the sole boat of the Wishford Line Steamer Company. After being refurbished from a packing ship into an excursion boat, Captain Wishart had all of the wooden posts removed 
and the dance floor then reinforced with steel beams. Thus, the GW Hill had a large ballroom with unobstructed views of the dance floor. Ever been on that one? Robert asked. Once or twice. Not as good as the Sydney, but it looks like they will be my only option now. Billy stood, watching the steamer pass, his arms hanging limply at his side. He mentioned to Robert that he had been banned from the breakfast line for the time being, knowing full well that Robert probably already knew. In fact, he knew the whole town had heard the story, or at least one of the many versions of the story. He could only imagine what they were hearing and then repeating. If the talk that was beginning in regard to Robert and Miss Brody was any indication, Billy knew that the stories involving his reprimand from Captain Streckfuss was most likely fantastical. Just add this to the list of reasons for getting out of Lily Springs, he thought. Hey, whatever happened to those fellows on the boat? Robert asked. Billy shrugged. Don't know. Robert flicked the remaining button to the river. It was ridiculous the way Tom was interrogating me. He was acting like this was the most important thing to happen to him in a long time. Did he do that to you? Yeah, but it's not a big deal, Billy said. There were no charges filed, case closed. He can go back to taking long naps at his desk. Billy imagined Clifford Jackman on the GW Hill looking out at him from the upper deck. He had no idea what the future held, but he wouldn't be surprised if Clifford came looking for him. He had seen the hatred in his eyes. Clifford and Pete were held in jail merely overnight and for the past week. Billy found himself walking slightly faster through town with periodic nervous looks to the road leading down to the dock in the depot. After all, Clifford had undoubtedly seen where he and Robert jumped ship. Although Lily Springs is not difficult to find, the only bright spot for Billy was the fact that the town lacked an easy means to visit. Boats didn't stop there anymore, and if the conductor wasn't alerted, trains pass it by. Billy saw Clifford as more of a lazy type, an opportunist who didn't go out of his way to make trouble, but was more than willing to cause trouble if the opportunity presented itself. Nevertheless, Billy placed this on his list of reasons for leaving Lily Springs. Watching the steamer pass, Billy wished to be anywhere but here. He had been thinking long and hard about enlisting. Brad Abel had told him that with his mechanical skills, he could have the run of the army because those with the know-how to keep things moving always had the upper hand. You may not have the stripes or insignias, he said. But those in charge know who to turn to in a pickle and guys like you, he held up his finger and planted it into Billy's chest, are always treated with a certain type of respect. Probably an exaggeration to be sure, but Billy liked the sound of it. He imagined himself in the crisp khaki uniform, the round service hat, the boots. No one would mess with him looking like that. Billy was watching the steamer pass, not realizing that he was softly humming the melody to Over There, when the name Abelia brought him back to the shores of the Mississippi River. Robert was talking about her again. Something about delivering a small package this morning from the Dubuque Music Company 
and leaving it on her porch as there was no answer from the door nor was she visible in the back. He thought it was a record or two and was worried that it would melt in this heat. Billy sat back down on the log, his knee briefly brushing against Robert's leg. "'What's with you and Miss Brody?' he asked, trying to make the question seem as casual as possible. Robert was surprised, caught off guard. "'What do you mean?' "'Well,' he started, not knowing exactly how to phrase what he wanted to say. After Robert left the picnic with Miss Brody on his arms, guarded conversation occurred between certain people in the crowd who had noticed them leave. It was Rose who had brought it up. "'I don't like the looks of this,' she stated to Ellie. Surprisingly, Ellie was enjoying herself too much to even take serious note. But others did. And when Rose discovered that one or two ladies from the community church had a common interest in a potential scandal, the gossip flourished. Maybe not as much as Billy was making it out to be, but he was sure others were thinking about it, too. It seems you spent a lot of time with her, and she's... What? Billy didn't know how to say it, as it was something he didn't quite understand. She's old, he finally blurted out, like my mother. Robert laughed at that. <laughs> I don't see her as old, Billy. After you left with her the other day, people were talking. That's not surprising. People in this town like to talk about nothing. When I got here, they told me a lot of stories about Abelia, none of which happened to be true. Robert stood and walked over to the bank. I don't know, Billy. All I know is that she's not old. It was silent. The music from the excursion boat barely audible over the lapping of water and the occasional bullfrog. Billy did not want to offend Robert. After what happened last week, he was actually surprised Robert had agreed to come fishing with him. Not knowing how many chances he had, he didn't want to make any more mistakes. But at this moment, studying Robert's face as he looked across the river, but clearly not seeing the water, he couldn't help but think that Miss Brody was one of the luckiest people in Lily Springs. There's something about her, Billy, Robert finally said. He turned and shrugged. And I like being around her, I guess. All I know is that when I'm with her, my days in this town are a little more bearable. She's been nothing but nice to me all my life, Billy admitted. I don't think this town ever gave her a chance. As far as I'm concerned, she's better than the whole of them put together. He smiled at Billy. Present company excluded, of course. Billy looked out to the jug, still engaged in their endless yet stationary bob, wondering if ever someone would think the same about him. He wasn't sure if he made anyone's life bearable. There was only one brief moment when he thought that was a possibility. But then Clifford Jackman came into his life and that possibility was forever extinguished. Billy wondered for a moment if Clifford's brother ever thought about him and didn't realize that the jug nearest the fallen tree had disappeared under the water. It popped up again with a splash and began moving toward the rotten trunk. Billy leapt to his feet and grabbed the appropriate line. I knew it, he exclaimed, excited not just for the potential catch, but for the distraction from the conversation. 
He was beginning to think his life was not too unlike those jugs sitting in the water waiting for a fish. The line was taut and Billy wrapped it around his palm a few times to get a better grip. Give me a hand! Robert reached down and helped pull. Bubbles broke the surface. A forked tail fin slammed into the jug. I told you we'd get one there. It's a big one, too. The fish struggled against the line, but Billy and Robert gave some slack and then pulled it again. They repeated this several times, tiring the fish out. Robert was amazed at just how strong it was. A slick body twisted at the surface near the shore. Swirls of mud bubbled in the water as the catfish's head broke the water, its metallic skin shimmering in the afternoon sun. Nice one, exclaimed Billy. It's a blue. These fish get really big. That's probably what they caught in that book of yours. They're bigger the further downriver you go. Over a hundred pounds is not uncommon. After a few more pulls, they got the fish up on the grass. The fish was a good two feet long. Probably about 20 or 25 pounds, said Billy. You'll be eating good tonight, my friend. Billy dragged the catfish further on the shore and started pulling in the other lines. I don't think we'll need to catch another one. We'll clean them at my house. Robert couldn't take his eyes off the fish, its large tail twitching in a desperate attempt to move back into the water, but its white and rather rotund belly prevented any escape. Plus, Billy had wrapped the line around the trunk of the tree. That fish wasn't going anywhere. I've never seen a fish that big before, Robert said. I almost feel sorry for it. Billy laughed. <laughs> you never hear anyone say that about a fish around here. The thing's about as smart as the rock at your feet. After handing the jugs and bucket to Robert, Billy tied a rope around the tail of the fish and swung it over his back. I'll teach you how to clean a fish, he said as they made their way up the trail to the main road. Billy caught Robert's curious yet somewhat apprehensive glances towards the fish, which still opened and closed its mouth in an attempt to breathe. These fish can live for some time out of water. As they approached town, they saw a figure standing near the fence at Art's house, pacing back and forth. It was Tom. Look, a keystone cop, said Robert under his breath. Billy shot him an inquisitive glance. Robert rolled his eyes. I forgot you don't have a movie theater. I'll explain later. I wonder what he wants, mumbled Billy as they walked up to the gate. Tom tilted his hat back, a serious look on his face. Hello, boys, he said as a mere formality and then noticed what Billy was carrying. Nice fish, he added as an afterthought. He turned to Robert and hailed deeply through his nose, as if getting ready for another round of questioning. Uh, "'What now, Mr. Brooks?' asked Robert impatiently, fully expecting some sort of lecture. That's when they both noticed the glistening of his eyes in the late afternoon light. "'Sorry to be the one to tell you this, Robert. Art is dead.'" All right, so I'm back. 
didn't do an episode last week uh, because I uh, got pneumonia and was in the hospital. Uh, who gets pneumonia in the summertime is beyond me. With everything on my plate, we are going to start reducing the uh, frequency of this podcast to once every other week. Uh, I'm working on a bunch of things, and it's just it's just getting kind of hard to get these all ready within a week's time. Plus, that'll give people time to catch up with the story. I hope you enjoyed that chapter. I really enjoyed writing it, and I like changing the perspective a bit, and I like writing from Billy's perspective. And this chapter, you know, uh, pushed me in a different direction with that character, as we're going to see a few chapters down the line here. And something's going to happen to Billy that's going to push him out of Lily Springs. Something's going to happen beyond Art's death, which should be somewhat of a shocker. Something's going to happen with Abelia and Robert that's going to push them out of uh, out of Lily Springs as well. But I just enjoyed. I wanted to, you know, situate this town on the banks of the Mississippi. I've got kind of a fascination with the Mississippi. I had been there several times before writing this, but had taken a trip to Dubuque, rode a steamer, went to the Mississippi River Museum in Dubuque, and if you've never been there. Go to it. It's an amazing little museum. There's a ton of stuff about the Mississippi. They've got big tanks. They've got, you know, native plants and fish in these tanks and so forth. You can see some nice-sized catfish there. You can see some uh, paddle fish. Uh, You can see some sturgeon. Like sturgeon were a big deal on the Mississippi River. Not so much now, from what I understand, but... um, Back over 100 years ago, it was not uncommon to get large lake sturgeon in the river. And, of course, jugging for catfish. I had uh, discovered in a magazine doing my research, um, American Angler from 1885 was one of the uh, magazines that I found that you know talked about the fish and the techniques for catching them on the Mississippi. And there is this great book that was written in 1888 called What to Do and How to Do It, the American Boys Handy Book. And they had pictures of uh, jugging for catfish and how to set the jug correctly. And so... There we have some uh, jugging for catfish, which is really, really kind of a cool, cool thing. And so, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to capture a little bit about Billy here and write the chapter from his perspective. And uh, originally it was written from Robert's perspective, but I thought the narrative needed, you know, something a little bit, a little bit different. I do know, I can tell you this, I do know when this um, day was. And that is because, trying to find it here, where is, oh, here it is. Um, I just 
opened up my computer. Uh, Google News Archive is an amazing thing. They have all of um, the editions of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And so Billy and Robert were sitting on the banks of the Mississippi, jugging for catfish on July 7th, 1917. And that's because they saw the steamship G.W. Hill. And just like I read in the chapter, I put it in there. There are ads in the Telegraph Herald. And um, there was one on Thursday, July 5th. And it says Dubuque Commercial Club Excursion, the steamer G.W. Hill, Saturday, July 7th to Gutenberg via Cassville. Boat leaves 1.30 p.m. An entire afternoon and evening on the water. Bring your friends. Have a good time. Adults, 50 cents. Children, 25 tickets in advance at the commercial club. So excursion boats were a big thing along the Mississippi. And so I I try to root this story as much as I can in actual history. I like placing my characters in situations, in places with verifiable history. You know, whether we're talking about going to see a Charlie Chaplin film or on the banks of the Mississippi when a steamer goes by. So I'm trying to keep this as true as I can. So we've got uh, got some things coming up. Uh, Robert is going to have to deal with the death of Art, and that's going to bring us to another very interesting late 20th century, early 20th century phenomenon, and that is mortuary photography. And that is coming up. In the next chapter of Lilac Wine, the novel. Um, Thanks for listening and thanks for hanging out with me. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know. You can always find us at lilacwinenovel.com. You could go to email and just, you know, type up an email. You could send it to me, a question, a comment, suggestion at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. And again, if you're liking this podcast, please tell your friends. Um, Yeah, I would love to get some more listeners, but you guys have been great. Thanks for sticking with this. We have a few more chapters to go before we've reached the point where I will need to begin writing new chapters as we go. I will let you know when we get close to that. And again, I am Bruce Janu. See you next time around. This podcast is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. The podcast is produced by my company, Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com. For more information, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit lilacwinenovel.com to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. 
Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.